and welcome to another Dishcast. Coming to you from DuPont Circle in Washington, D.C., we have a little studio here where Chris and I sit, and we have our wonderful technician, general, impresario, Selchuk. We have a whole bunch of really great guests coming up. We have veganism coming up. But today, we're going to slight change of tune. We also have Ben Smith, whose book Traffic is just out, and I've just been reading. And actually, that's been a helpful thing to also read alongside the book I've also just read, which is Chris Starwalt's book, Broken News, Why the Media Rage Machine Divides America and How to Fight Back. And Chris is here today. I'm thrilled to have him. Really excited to have him on the show. He's a political analyst and author. He worked at Fox News for more than a decade until they fired him in the wake of the 2020 election when he was part of the election team that accurately called Arizona for Biden. He committed an act of journalism at Fox News and was fired for it. He's now the politics editor for News Nation and a contributing editor for The Dispatch, a wonderful little, I was going to say use the word remnant, but that would be too close to the bone. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Jonah Goldberg's brigade, for whom I have immense respect. And he's the author of Every Man a King, a short, colorful history of American populists, and this new book. In fact, Chris, reading your book, you really do have a phenomenal grasp of American political history. And your discussion of Huey Long was really kind of helpful to me. I mean, it's, 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 it's sometimes I feel uh, we get trapped in presentism and we, we, we don't see that lots of the things that we think are endemic to our moment are not new to humanity and have come around and not new to America either in that way. So I hope we, we'll get into that, um, especially with partisan, feisty, tribalized media. It's not as if, and this is one of the really good things that comes from your book, I think, it's not as if this hasn't always been a problem. It has been supercharged by new technologies, but it is the same problem that the founders grappled with, that early America grappled with, that the 19th century journalism grappled with, and that you can see in other parts of the, uh, parts of the world that operate not quite as toxically as they seem to be operating today. Chris, thanks so much for coming on, and very nice to meet you properly. Well, it's really nice to meet you, and I have to say, and I will try to limit my flattery to this beginning, but just to say how much I admire you, the work that you do, I can tell you that I have listened to every single dishcast, Hundo P, and I can tell you that what I admire about you is that you have taken possession of the work that you've done. You've had ownership in a in a material way, but also you're accountable to yourself. You're accountable to your readers. You own your priors. You're having a frank conversation. And, you know, the unofficial motto of my family was do it scared. Good journalism isn't about not being afraid, but it's about doing it anyway. And I think that you've done a lot of that. And I really, I, I admire it. That's that's very sweet of you. Thank you. We used to, um, on the old dish, uh, we had that slogan, which was a little parody of 
of of of Roger Ailes. We had fair and balanced. We we actually we we called the dish biased and balanced. Yes, yes. In other words, you know, I can't fit. Are you because uh, I'm? And this is not a virtue. It's just a character flaw. I <laughs> I can't. I'm not very good at lying. I I'm very direct about how I think. If I fucked up, I tend to be very straightforward about it. But so uh, owning your bias as a writer. Now I'm an opinion writer, so it's a little different from me. In fact, it's very different from me. But nonetheless, even as your opinion writer, you do err. You should err. You should try and account for the best arguments against you. And that that's that's just an old debating principle. But of course, the reason we have that principle, I'm, I shouldn't be talking so much so, so soon, <laughs> is simply that ultimately we care about the truth. The, the only reason to add balance is because you might be missing something. That's right. It's not about appearing to be... Uh, virtuous. It's not about some kind of performance. It is simply about caring about what's true and not or not. And if the truth actually will affect your your worldview, that to me is the core motive for a writer or a journalist. There, there are very few things in the news business that can be done truly objectively, right? The score of the baseball game can be done objectively. Some might say that the results of an election could be done objectively. The, but even by the time you get to the weather forecast, now we're already dealing with the implicit bias and what your expectations are and guesses that you're making. Absolute impartiality is not a worthwhile objective for journalists. Fairness is, right? Fairness is. Even opinion journalism can be fair, should be fair. Uh, that's what you can do, which is that you can say, this is where I'm coming from. This is who I am. And then you have to start with the next assumption, which is that the other people actually believe what they say they believe and that they're not actual secret monsters trying to destroy the world, but that they may sincerely think the things that they think and believe the things that they believe and that you have to confront that in a whole, a wholesome kind of way. And the worst thing that happens is not lying in journalism by and large. It is eliding, right? It is the hidden ball trick. And we're not going to say what the other people really think. So what you get instead is you versus a straw man. And it's we have just whole wheat fields full of straw men burning constantly in journalism because people don't want to say, but I might be wrong, have enough humility to say, but I might be wrong. And here's what some other people think. Or you're writing a piece as it has happened to me, and it would happen to any honest journalist, and you, you, you state your, your thesis, and blah, blah, and then you have the to-be-sure paragraph. You just call it right. to-be-sure. <laughs> and Now, you're writing opinion journalism, so the point of the to-be-sure paragraph is not to actually refute everything you've said before, but to slightly qualify it. Right. However, there have been moments when I've gotten to that to-be-sure paragraph and realized I'm wrong. Right. <laughs> Actually, refute what I was saying to go to, um, to go where, to go where it leads you, right? Because I know exactly the to be sure you mean. To be sure, there are those who say that Godzilla had a negative effect on Tokyo, <laughs> comma. But they are they have been anti monster bigots from the beginning and have always opposed Godzilla, let alone Mothra. And that's it's the it's the easy way out. That's right. Yes, but sometimes, as I said, the to be sure paragraph can be for real. You can actually propose some things that that really do confront your position. And you're more effective as a debater if you address that and, and, and deal with it, simply because 
when people are reading you, they, you have to imagine them. They'll come up with a question. Well, what about that? And your job as a writer, and much more importantly, if you're editing, is to say, why don't you address that question? That's you don't right. have to. You don't have to ignore. Now, sometimes, and again, I shall shut up. Sometimes, a good old screed is great. I mean, I don't want to not have in opinion journalism the occasional spirited rant, even if it's a little off, even if it's a little strange. I'm okay. saying this because last week <laughs> the, the readers have had an absolute cow about the column I wrote, like talking about the, the good side of Bobby Kennedy and Tucker Carlson. And, you know, I'm sorry, guys, but I've, every now and again, I got to throw one like that at you. Yeah, you got to clear your throat occasionally. You got to say, yeah. And, <clears throat> the, and the other thing is you have to be honest with your audience about what they're going to get. Right. You don't want to say this is a safe space where you'll never hear anything that bothers you or you will get the wrong audience. Right. You will you will find yourself with the with the incorrect audience. And what you have to do is make sure that they know what you're doing. And what I try to do is if I've written a number of pieces, I'm, I'm doing much more analysis than I am doing opinion. But when I'm doing the analysis from this direction, the Pee Wee Reese, the baseball player, when they asked him what his secret to his great batting average was, he said, hit them where they ain't. Uh, and you got to hit them where they ain't. Sometimes you have to just say, okay, let's reset our, let's, let's reset a little bit here and let's talk about something difficult. Let's talk about something that way. And it's not that you're harassing your audience, but you're making sure everybody knows why we're here. Yeah. And that's kind of important. I remember, and, and the, the, one of the things about the internet, and we'll talk about this, is that it actually made that more possible. It made a writer more able to say, oh, I'm sorry, or let's put this out there as well, or to correct over time and to be more reflective and to be more transparent, that it gave flexibility that a simple weekly printed column with no interaction could ever do. And for my mind, that was an incredible uh, opportunity to sort of freelance, freewheel, and see where this new medium would take us. And as you may remember, I was, I was experimenting with it from the very very first and but i'll tell you this my first audience at the dish the original dish the daily dish which which really took off after 9 11 were people war bloggers were people who were with me in obsessing about well obsessing maybe that's too negative a term but being terif terrified by the prospect of of islamist terrorism with weapons of mass destruction all of which after the trauma of 9 11 seemed good and then the iraq war we know the story here we knew how i deluded myself how we all deluded ourselves into this but then i changed and i lost about 60 percent of my readers yeah overnight and that's the moment this is the moment that kind of you confronted in a weird way is that you're suddenly having to tell your readership that you have brought to you who you encourage that something they really don't want to hear and you as then you have this fatal do i just carry on or do i give in and, and i wasn't earning much money back then from it it was just all occasional donations but yeah there was a real hit real hit and the and the, the thing is if the reason people are reading or listening to you and me is to know exactly what's going to happen 
and exactly everything 100% right, then they're in the wrong place anyway. Because the idea is, to a certain degree, reasoning together. Here's what I know. Here's why I think what I think. This is why I think Ron DeSantis is going to do this. And this is why this is the problem with Trump doing that. And this is the, these are these things. <clears throat> if I say those things without humility, right? If I say those things with excessive surety, I can grow a larger audience. I certainly, I am, I know that there are a lot of shortcuts that I could have taken over time to be more popular, but that does not sound like a great deal of fun, right? Uh, it does not sound like a great deal of fun to wake up every day to be in this fun, exciting, weird, interesting business, to have a backstage pass to life and then say, but what I shall do today is whatever they tell me. I shall do exactly whatever they tell me. I should, whatever, whether it's the mob, whether it's the boss, whether it's whatever, we're supposed to be the skunk at the garden party. We're supposed to be problematic. That's the idea because we're supposed to spur people to think. We're supposed to help people be better citizens. We're supposed to do all of that stuff. And I can't, look, I'm, I'm against uh, controversialism as a, as a, for its own sake. I'm, I, I don't want to be that person. But I definitely know that the benefit of a free press is having interesting discussions that help shed light on things. And as you know, arg argument between two people is seldom persuasive, but reading the arguments of others can be very persuasive, right? When you hear, when I listen to your podcast, I, and I hear you talking to somebody with whom I am not inclined to agree, but then I hear it fleshed out and I hear the sincerity and then I'm like, oh, I'm picking something up here. So sincere argument, even when people are wrong, can be beneficial. Where did you as growing up, how did, how did, how did this feeling about learning through debate or through conflict the truth? Was there any sort of early moment in you when you, you figured out, you know, I want to be a person that figures out what's actually real out there? I, <clears throat> I think, you know, my father was a coal salesman and in Washington, DC, that sounds like somebody who drives a cart around with a shovel, but in West Virginia, he was an executive and he had a very good job. And my mom was a, a stay at home mom who was very supportive of his work and all of that stuff. So I sort of grew up in the, in corporate America. Right. I was I was a child of corporate America. I knew when my dad I knew when it was expense account season because my dad would bring his briefcase home and have to do to do that. I was aware that that was not the time to ask him for favors. Um, <laughs> but I grew up in a very patriotic home. I grew up in a home of sincere patriotism and I grew up in a home where. I'll put it this way. My dad was a Goldwater volunteer in 64. He was, my, my mother was a Phyllis Schlafly supporter. I grew up in what was most assuredly a conservative household. I grew up in the church. I grew up around all, all of that. Which, which church? I'm an ethnic Presbyterian. Uh, so you grew up as a Presbyterian. Well, I grew up, but my parents started attending an evangelical church okay. when I was young. And so I grew up in both worlds and okay. for a time went to both. I returned to the Presbyterian church as an adult, but I, it, it's, I, 
I was frustrated when I was a kid because for a period of time we moved to St. Louis and I thought I'm in the big city. Now, you know what that sounds like. I know what that sounds like to you, Cosmopolite, but it was like, I, we're, here I am in the big city of St. Louis, Missouri, and I was like probably 13 or something. And news that we were going to move back to West Virginia, well, I was gutted. I couldn't, I couldn't believe it, that I was going to have to go back to West Virginia and do all of that. And what I have realized over time is that being of two worlds, and I think my faith upbringing is reflective of this too, which is being of two worlds is a helpful thing for a journalist. Being able to understand the world from more than one point of view when you start out is very helpful. And I became a reporter very much by accident. Entirely, I needed to have a summer job. And the only summer job that I had screwed around and found was one that might require me to wear a paper hat with a dancing hot dog on it. And my <laughs> adolescent ego would not permit this. And so I got a job writing sports at the local newspaper through, mm. the, through the good offices of a, of, a, of a kindly family friend. And I got the, and I got the job. And I, I wrote about this in the book. But like, I found my people, I walked into that room at age 17, that that sports department. And I was 100, I immediately knew that these crabby, profane, smoking, ill paid people were my people, I immediately knew I was like, Oh, this is it. And when I talk to young people now, I remind them that I had an extraordinary advantage. And my extraordinary advantage was I knew what I wanted to do. When I was a, when I was 17 years old, I knew with the conviction of a, a religious conversion, like, oh, this is where I'm supposed to be. And I loved it so, so much and have improbably been able to for 30 years uh, in one way or the other maintain, stay alive doing that. Let's talk about why that was such a moment for you. Well, what was it about the newsroom? Was that what you're talking about? Like yeah. around these people? Like the... <laughs> Because I had a somewhat similar experience at the old Daily Telegraph when yes. I was an intern there in the summer, uh, which was back then in the old Daily Beast building, the old Beast thing from Scoop. So it was actually the scene for Scoop. Imagine that. You're, you're actually walking in as a college intern into the very building that Evelyn Waugh parodied in that amazing novel about journalism. Anyway, and you could the, the presses were down below these giant, hot metal press is still still done by sort of medieval craftsmen earning a fortune. This was like before Thatcher bust the unions. And the newsroom was the most, well, again, you could barely see the other side of it for the cigarette smoke. Mm. The noise was intense. The clatter clatter of the typewriters, the, the, the yelling, the shouting, the jokes, the laughing, the, the occasional expletives that you'd hear all over the place. And then like clockwork, the, the, the migration to the pub Yes, and then back again, and then back to the pub. <laughs> it was shit faced, and I remember thinking, "Yeah, this is fucking great. This is this is this is." And then you watch the little thing come out every day. It would go out in a truck and be taken, and you'd see people reading in the morning. What could be more fun than that? To come back from the composing room when pages came back from the composing room, they came in a pneumatic tube rolled up inside the tube, and there was a big metal bin that they shot out of the tube into shaboom and they came in and that meant that there were pages ready to proof and that you were intimately connected to the the mechanism of getting this information out the making of it and there was you walked across where everybody you know was outside smoking 
smoking the the ashtrays that smoldered like Mount Vesuvius, as big as a <laughs> as the hubcap on a Plymouth. The the people were were reconciling themselves to having to go stand on the loading dock to smoke cigarettes. And the across the alley was the composing room, and that's where the presses were, and that's where the trucks rolled, and that's where all of that stuff happened. And I remember the feeling of the first time I wrote up an American Legion baseball game. And it's, you know, a little rop, little run of print, you know, what is it, 75 words or something that you wrote up that so-and-so hit a homer and blah, 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 blah. And I remember they printed that 30,000 times. They printed my words 30,000 times and they took them to every coffee shop, all of my neighbor's houses. They took it everywhere and people read it. And that to me felt like such an amazing miracle that I got to be part of that. And it was, part of it was that it fed my ego. Like, wow, look what I did. But the other part of it was, I'm in this club. I'm part of this group of ink-stained wretches. I'm part of this, like, this fraternity, this group of people who are weird, interesting, unusual, colorful. Some of them go to Ivy League schools. Some of them don't go to college. It, just this interesting group of people. And it has never stopped being fun. And it has never stopped being interesting. There's something about analog experiences that we're talking about here. We're talking about tangible, tactile things. We're talking about cigarette smoke and noises and sounds and paper and print. And that has all gone in a way that was exhilarating in some ways. I remember, and not many of us have actually at this point lived both eras. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, and, and, to, and to start in one technology and to end up in another, the, the, the revolution that started to happen in the 90s and early 2000s when the web began to emerge was obviously a, an absolutely fateful time for journalism. How did you first encounter those, those technological changes? So I arrived right at the end of the party. I arrived right at the last days of the Raj, right? It was amazing because I graduated, from, I, I had done school newspaper. I had done, I, my, as my GPA would reflect, I was much more interested in school newspaper at Hamden Sydney College than I was in the, the, the finer points of biology. So I was totally focused on this, got out, went to work, and I got to, after a short stint back in my hometown paper, I got to the capital city and the capital city newspaper down in Charleston, the Charleston Daily Mail. And I got there in 1998, which is, uh, as my research for the book would later tell me, uh, was the very beginning of the end. And the period between 1998 and 2005 was the, the dead cat bounce that was about to take place in the business, that advertising revenues were going to go up for print. And people said, what internet? Who cares? And then it would collapse 90% basically over the next five years after that. My experience was I arrived at a time where the newspaper industry was over leveraged to an extraordinary degree. You could always borrow money. You could always borrow more money to buy a newspaper because the newspaper in the United States was a guaranteed income stream. If you had, because of the weird joint 
operating because of the weird antitrust uh, provisions that the government had put in. Our, the story of our government includes a lot of patronage for the newspaper business, right? And propping up the newspaper business. So you could make 25, 30% profit if you had a newspaper because you were protected. It was a kind of monopoly that you had. And the government had to advertise in it. Everybody had to put classified ads in it. It was built into the furnishings of life. And as a result, the newspaper I worked for, the Charleston Daily Mail, had been sold and sold and sold and sold several times and had been agglomerated into ever larger Thompson sold it to sold it to, to, to sold it to sold it to sold it. And when competitive pressures changed, there was no slack in the line for small market and medium market newspapers. And the, you know, I, I need to think of an actual punchline for this, but you know what you call somebody who runs a newspaper? What? A publisher. They, you don't call them a news person. They're not in the, they, their name isn't news guy. It is publisher. And they thought of themselves as being in the printing business because that was the good business to be in. And when the competitive pressures arose from the internet, what did they cut? They didn't cut the presses that they loved. They didn't cut all of the, that beautiful smell of newsprint and ink and all of the trucks roaring out of the building at five o'clock in the morning. They didn't cut that stuff. They cut the monkeys in the newsroom <clears throat> who they had always viewed suspiciously anyway. And they thought they could cut their way back to profits and it exploded. I got, at, newspaper got sold out from underneath me. I went over to local TV, which was <clears throat> an education. It was a, it was, it was a real education over there. And I have an enormous amount of respect for the people who work in local TV because of the amount of work that they have to do. And it's really the only thing propping up local news in America today. So, but it was a, I got an education there. And then, because I believe, if you want to know what a dork I am, when I was 28, I was, I'm 47 now. When I was 28, I was named the political editor for the Charleston Daily Mail. I had a door with a, on my office that actually closed. I, had, I wrote two columns a week, and I could do anything I wanted, go anywhere I wanted. And Andrew, I believed that that was the job I would retire from. I believed that I would have that job like the guys who had had it before me. And that I was just, a, I was a young phenom who had somehow gotten this great job and I would do it forever. You cannot imagine my surprise, like a year later when they said, yeah, we're getting sold and this is going away. And so I made my way to TV news. I did that for a few years with a print component in it too. And then I came to Washington for the Washington Examiner and for family reasons. And I came up to Washington and I worked for the Washington Examiner when Phil Anschutz was going to save print. And I was excited. We were going to save the print newspapers. There were going to be print newspapers all over the country. We were going to do it. And this is 2007. We did not. We did not save print. That, that is not what took place. Uh, but it did take me to Washington. And I got a whole nother education there. And a few years after that, I went, I followed my, a guy who I had edited, who became my boss, Bill Salmon and followed him over to Fox, and then had seven great years at Fox. The beauty of the analog system is that you had to buy it all at once. Yes. And one of the things that the Daily Telegraph had, for example, was one of the best sports sections in the country. 
So a lot of people bought the Daily Telegraph to read rugby, cricket, football, et cetera, et cetera. And you, as the political writer, really people, most people, be art, they don't want to read those bloody things. They're not buying the paper to read these people's opinions. In fact, let alone the newspaper's own editorials. Now, some people in power will, you know, the mayor will, the, the, the prime, all these people will, but most people don't. So, and all of that has to be stapled together, has to be put in a package. So you kind of have to reach normies. Yes. You, you have to have an appeal across political factions because everyone likes football. And it, depending, it, it's irrespective of your politics. We thought, and, and yet when you once you decoupled all these things from each other, you found that in fact people still love reading about sports, not so keen on political opinion, and in fact. The the way in which columnists like you were talking about, and I one also had this feeling because you looked at the New York Times and you saw people like Flora Lewis, who one thought had died in the last century, was still, still, still putting out these with a NATO columns twice a week. Oh. Oh. Uh, we, <laughs> nowadays, you know, when we were kids in the Republic, we used to make fun of all these people, and now I feel bad because no, nah, well, uh, we thought. <laughs> that they were reading for us, right? Right, right, right. I right, thought right. that people were reading because they wanted to get my mordant wit applied okay. to the question of the school bond. They, I, I thought that's why they were coming. That is not why they were coming. They were coming for the sports. They were coming for the comics and the crossword, but they were also coming because they needed to know where they could buy a used shifferobe. They needed to know what time Die Hard 2, Die Hard with a Vengeance was showing at the Cineplex. They needed to know the weather, the stocks, and all of that stuff that we had. And we had all that information. And to get it, you needed to get the newspaper. And, and you also had to, as an entire newspaper, your entire orientation was therefore related to facts. That's right. Things that you just delivered as a service data points, like things that are real on the ground. And then there was a, you know, then you can have an opinion about something and a, a cartoon about something. But no, that was, so you had that kind of feel to it. Whereas when you separate out That's right. news and opinion in its own zone, it's so much easier for opinion to take over and, and, and for the loss of that general audience that you always worked for. Now, it, you know, it's not as if, for example, now the other thing I want is is that is that Daily Telegraph was also a Tory paper. Yeah, there were there the people knew, but they knew that the Tory paper was not going to lie, tell them things that weren't true about the cricket match, weren't true about the weather, or weren't true about the latest bill in Parliament, or weren't true about the details of things. They really did trust them on that, and the internet kind of by allowing this free floating opinion centered journalism to work really do work in reaching subscribers and readers kind of blew that model to smithereens. Well, you can't, you know, you could liken it to a, a lot of other things that changed with the internet, super specialization, right? So when I was a kid, somebody would have their dad's nudie magazines, right? It would be like somebody's dad had a stack of penthouse magazines stashed somewhere and you would look at them. And you were amazed. You were amazed that this existed in the world. You wanted to know a lot more. But you did not feel that you were in the place to be very selective or specific. 
Now, <laughs> what do you want, right? Is there a goat in it or not a goat? How many goats are in it? No, I only like it if it's got four goats. The fourth <laughs> goat is what does it for me. The stuff with the three goats is really lame and it's real vanilla and I don't care for it. So as we, as it became possible for people to create a bespoke reality for themselves, they became enormously intolerant of things that they disagreed with or didn't want. One of the great editors that I had, a person I owe a lot, Steve Smith, used to talk about that the loss with newspapers was serendipities, right? I, I don't read the obits. I read the New York Times every day. I read the Wall Street Journal every day. I read the Washington Post most days. And the <laughs> I don't read the obits because right. I don't. But in the old days, you would. You'd be flipping and here, oh, that's interesting. I think I'll read that. What do these, what do the apps or websites for those outlets tell you instead now? If you like this story about four goats, you may like these other stories about four goats. And you can dive in right here and you can swim all the way down to the bottom of it and hear thing after thing after thing that will reinforce your worldview and make you feel good and smart and pretty and better. Not only that, but when we were producing analog products you didn't know like when i would put out an issue of the magazine new republic i i kind of knew that probably most people just read mike kinsley's column and the diarist and didn't get to that 12 page essay about medieval jewish views of of satanism or whatever <laughs> there was some there was always some very esoteric and largely unreadable piece. But 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 then suddenly, and I discovered this doing my own blogging, boy, you could see if something you wrote suddenly was massively more engaged or popular than something else that you wrote. So suddenly, and not only that, but you get this emotional feedback of of the stats. Boy, I got a thousand people yesterday. I got, and everything is calculated. Everything's in data. So whether you like it or not, you suddenly become, you suddenly start chasing your own tail. You, you're suddenly so aware of the direct impact of specific things that you lose sense of what the whole thing was supposed to be about in the first place. And it is very hard to resist that because it's very hard for a newspaper person or for a writer to resist eyeballs that they're the ultimate compliment right it's the ultimate compliment and your investors will tell you that you had better not right but even if you feel a little froggy you better not jump what you better do is give the people what they want the discussion that took place since i have this memory of the before time like right at the end those couple years right at the end of the traditional of of basically the consensus world that had formed after the Second World War, this this unusual to American history, but very powerful period that had existed. I came in at the at the end of the show. The debate was, what do you think people want? What do you what do you I don't know. I think they want this. Well, I think they want they may want that. I fought to get the family circus out of the newspaper for many years because it is a terrible comic strip. We all know that Me Too is really just one of the kids, okay? Like, why are we still doing this? Why are we still running this? And people say, well, people love it. And I would say, how do you know that people love the family circus? You don't know that people love this terrible comic strip. They may hate it. Beetle Bailey may not really have any followers. But these were all hypothetical conversations. Once you could show clicks, right? Once you could say, I got the data, and this is what people want. And the, the sick part, the sad part is... The best 
most reliable producer of clicks is hatred. Anger and hatred is the most surefire, best way to get a click. I looked at a study on social media interaction with stories about members of Congress. And there was a inverse correlation between how significant the individuals really were. Chuck Schumer, Mitch McConnell, Joe Manchin. This was during the, you know, the the Joe Manchin as king of the US Senate phase. So all these people who are heavy hitters in Congress got no traction. AOC, Ted Cruz, all of that stuff off the charts. Then you peel it back and you say, okay, so these are people who like them? No. 90% of the interactions were negative interactions. They were right-wing attacking left-wing. They were left-wing attacking right-wing and dragging people out to say, look at who we have. Well, look at who we've got here. It's Ted Cruz again. Who wants to, who wants to, who wants to micturate all over Ted Cruz? Oh, we do, we do line up to do it. And the, the capture, the audience capture that takes place is no one could resist it ultimately. Like no, no one is good enough to say, I will never think about what my audience wants. I can know what they want, but I'll, I promise I'll never give it to them. That's not true. I don't think the old dish, we never had readership like we did when we were covering Palin, when she suddenly launched onto the scene and no one knew anything about her. And I was deeply suspicious of her. And, 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 and traffic went through the bloody roof. I mean, just... People could not get enough of this. This was obviously incredibly positive for us. It actually meant because I'd done a, a pretty good deal with the Atlantic that we were going to be, we thought we were going to be rich. And there was real money here. I'm just saying that it's totally understandable yes. that these incentives, and also there was something else that happened, was that, that everybody had their own newspaper. Mm -hmm. Increasingly in the early, in the 2000s, People's Facebook pages became a place where they could express themselves. Now, I don't think Americans, I mean, there have been periods in which Americans have hated their politicians, but it, 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 there's been a, it, it's, it's, it's an eternal fact that lots of people will hate and despise various politicians of various kinds. It's, it's a healthy thing to, to be deeply suspicious. And they would vent, you know, that was what Thanksgiving dinner was. That was what you're hanging out at the pub was. That's what chatting with your friends over the water. But you weren't, you weren't forced to own those opinions constantly. That's right. And you weren't declaring them in front of thousands of people and therefore feel you have to defend them the next day. And so suddenly this, the ability to publish yourself, and not only that, but the publishing yourself inevitably and what online media inevitably did do, and I could feel this in my bones, was it was a very personal thing. That's right. It started peer-to-peer -peer. you know that's how the internet worked you, you sent emails to people you knew and so somehow the the personal tone was by far the most important the institutional impact well it was vastly reduced institutions were thoroughly weakened the reason i was reading the daily dish every day was that here's this guy right? He's a real pressman. He's a real guy, right? Who has the, has had this interesting, important career. He went to these good schools and he's been validated by elite institutions and he has the track record to prove it. And here he is down here with us picking shit with the chickens. Here yeah. he is, like here, here he is. And it was interesting and exciting. Jonah Goldberg tell much the same story, right? Yeah. Which is, National Review, William F. Buckley's, uh, the book that William, of the compendium of William F. Buckley's letters to readers was 
called cancel your own damn subscription. And that was the <laughs> attitude and the energy of like, we're up here, you're down there, you shut up and you can read it if you want to, because enough people are that here were here was you here was Jonah here were some other people climbing down out of the tower yeah. and coming down to be with us. And it yeah. felt heady and it and it was exciting. And it was great. And then it got weird. And it also, we were also tempted, of course, to tell the truth about the way we felt about the rest of the media and other So that kind of established front, as it were, mm -hmm. began to weaken. And, and you, you had, yeah. Well, you make a fantastic point about the social cost of opinion, right? So it was good for us when journalists felt like they should not share all of their opinions. It was good mm -hmm. for us when they didn't because it allowed journalists to reconsider and rethink things. One of the biggest arguments I have against the kind of advocacy journalism that is getting schlepped around at elite institutions and at journalism schools where, you know, put yourself into it, how you feel about abortion, how you feel about the, you, you know, you need to be in there. No, no, that's, that's wrong because now you're going to have to own that forever and you won't be able to evolve on this question because you're going to, because it's going to be a personal thing. I always think about, there was a, a social psychologist, I'm sorry, I can't remember his name right now, but there was a UFO cult in Boston shortly. At, it was like the early 50s, Hi there. 40s, early 50s. This is not the end of this podcast. In fact, we're only just getting going. If you're a paid subscriber and are hearing this, it means you haven't yet signed up for the full new package to get our podcast in full. No extra charge. Just go to andrewsullivan.substack.com forward slash listen, L-I-S-T-E-N, and make sure your podcast is up to date with the DishCast. You'll be able to add it to your DishCast feed and never have this hear this message again and go back to exactly what you've been doing for the last two years. And I'd like to thank you too for contributing for so long. If you're hearing this message and you haven't yet subscribed and want to listen to the rest of the podcast, then just subscribe. It's very easy. AndrewSullivan.substack.com is 50 bucks a year. Great value for money. And you also get with that the entire weekly dish every Friday. Not just my weekly column, but also all the comments and dissents on that column. You also have a full discussion of the previous week's dish cast. So all those questions you had in your mind can be answered, or you can hear and read readers debating what we talked about, sometimes uh, calling me to account. AndrewSullivan.substack.com. Subscribe and get the whole thing. Join the debate. Join the fun. Subscribe.